Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, yeah. Well, I made my notes too small. They were fine on my desk, but then you put them up here and I'm too far away. So there, now I'm okay. <laughs> this evening, we'll be in Romans chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, to Romans 9. We switch kind of switch some gears here at this chapter. It seems like Paul wants to um, change his focus from 1 to 8, God, or Paul, God by Paul, um, has been showing us, you know, first you got to, you know, understand you're a sinner. And that's what really chapter 1, 2, and, and so on are about. And then he moves on to, so since you're a sinner, since you know you've broken the law and you've, you've, you've failed to meet the requirements uh, of perfection to get into heaven, um, God's provided a way for you and explained that to us and uh, explained our, uh, how necessary it was. And then, and then once you come to Christ and you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you realize you've got this war that goes on with, within you that Paul describes. You, know, you, you want to do the right thing, but you end up not basically. And then finally he says, and that's where we left off last week is chapter 8, it's by the Holy Spirit that we are able to accomplish the things we couldn't accomplish in the flesh. As much as I want to be good, I can't. But when I get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to work, when I allow the Holy Spirit and pay attention to his voice, his leading and his guiding, things work out. And it's not a struggle at all. It's actually very easy when you follow the signposts, when you listen to the voice, when you do what the instructions tell you to do. Um, We've got GPS now, which is great if it's right. <laughs> I remember the first time we had it and used it. We had actually the old-fashioned GPS, not our phone. It was an actual Garmin that we actually had there. Remember those? Oh, wait. Some of you are like, I still have that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, we used this on our vacation. Get us to a park. We want to get to a park in this city, and it took us to Timbuktu and we start pulling in a place kind of like this, but not mowed. And the grass is like six foot tall and you're going, okay. It's like the Amazon jungle or some kind of Sahara, I don't know, Africa thing going on here. And we pull in and I'm like, how could this thing think it's a park? This is not a park. And I looked and sure enough, there in the middle of it is this big tall ladder with a seat on top of it where the swimming pool used to be. You know, that was the lifeguard stand. I'm going, well, he brought us to a park. All right. Bad directions got us to the wrong place. Right place, but wrong time altogether. The Holy Spirit's built into us. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guide, as a leader, who will never get us to the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the wrong time, but will always put us at the right place at the right time. The Holy Spirit. He is our guide. That's the difference uh, between anything else, any other uh, philosophy or idea of holiness or spiritualist in this world. Those are all attempts on, uh, to, to manufacture and to get you to just follow some instructions from a book. And if you follow these instructions, you'll be okay. And they don't work. It has to be living. Our walk with Jesus Christ is a living walk. It's not a religion. It truly is a relationship. And I know we say that over and over again, but the relationship is how we accomplish the things we've always wanted to accomplish in the flesh, but we can do them in the Spirit now. It's that relationship. And the Holy Spirit in us says, no, don't do that. And when we start to learn and pay attention to those things, you know, um, we start to hear 
all the voices in our heads, and, and pretty soon we discover we can discern the right voice from the wrong voice. And that's the Holy Spirit. And it is through trial and error a lot of times. Sometimes you do think, this is what God wants me to do, and then you find out that isn't Him. That was my voice disguising itself, and it wasn't God at all. But then you hear him say it, and you do what he says, and it works out perfectly. Like, okay, I'm going to remember that tone. I'm going to remember that feeling, that, that peace I had in my heart when I heard that voice. And pretty soon we can walk in the Spirit, but it takes practice. It really does. It takes practice. I can still hear kids' voices in Walmart from a couple rows away, and I, and I turn like a dad, like, oh, that's not Mariah. I mean, I know their voices, but apparently not well enough to distinguish between that eight-year-old and my eight-year-old, or that six-year-old and my six-year-old. I can't distinguish. It takes practice. But boy, I can spot everybody. We were driving here tonight, and we saw this Jeep turn in front of us, and Mariah says, there's JC and Andrea. That's their Jeep. You know? I said, no, that's got Texas plates. That's not them. And out of the corner of my eye, I look down 7th Street, and I see him zipping through. I said, that's JC and Andrea right there. Not zipping like they're speeding or something like, there they go, on two wheels all the way around the corner. No, no, no. I could just see them, but I can spot them. There they are. That's their car right there. Simple illustration. That's the idea. Learning the Holy Spirit. Learning his voice. Learning his mannerisms. He lines up with God's word. That's what chapter 8 left us with. So there we are. We're set. Paul thinks we're good to go. You, got, you know you need Jesus. You know you're a sinner. You got Jesus. You know how to walk. You know how to, how to, how to have victory. Now let's talk about Israel. And that's what chapter 9 is about. Because the promises that were just given in 1 through 8 were really to the church. God loves you. He's provided for you a salvation, and he will be faithful to complete his promises. Well, the next question on their mind is, yeah, but he's done that with another nation before, and they're not doing so well right now. So he tries to reassure us, and that's what the next few chapters are about, to reassure us that, no, those, the promises are still in effect for Israel, um, it was their choice to go away from them. Likewise, those promises that God has for the church will be fulfilled as well. Okay, so don't lose heart. And so that's where he starts off. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul starts off with what I'm about to tell you is from my heart because I have such a deep concern for the nation of Israel and we know that about him. So the first thing he would do when he goes into any town is to go to the synagogue and to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to the folks that Christ came to die for, the Jews, the Jew first, the Gentile second. So he would do that. And so he is broken up in his heart, has great sorrow and continual grief. Now, before I move on to the next section where he describes the fact that he would rather be estranged from Christ and all of Israel be saved, which is a very common theme with Moses and Jesus, and we'll get into that. I think it's interesting that Paul's greatest sorrow and concern, the thing he thought about the most and what kept him up at night in prayer was the concern for other people. I think that's a lesson for all of us. I think that's a good learning thing for me to pick up and apply to my own life. When I get so petty, so small, so concerned about these tiny little things that go on around this world, 
And I'm not concerned about the souls of men. When I concern myself with the souls of men, when I am brokenhearted and weep and spend hours at night praying for those that are lost in my community, in my family, or around me, those other things get really small really quick. I'm honest, I believe that we're concerned with the most, the most important thing in our life. That's what keeps us up. That's what keeps us awake at night, is the most important thing in our life. For example, suppose my, uh, my dog's sick. You know, maybe he's not doing so well. If that's the biggest and worst problem I have, then that's what I focus on the most. Now, all of a sudden, my wife gets sick. Then that's the most important thing. I care less about the dog. I mean, I care about the dog, but hey, whatever happens to the dog, whatever. It's my wife that I'm concerned about. But if me and my wife, who's sick, are walking down the alley and someone puts a gun to our heads and tries to mug us, well, that's the biggest concern. And that's what I focus on. And all those other things pale in comparison. See, I don't know how to get rid of all these little things. I don't think I can fix all those little things. But if eternity is the most important thing in my life, if that's what I think about the most, if I look at the souls of men, I see people walking past me, I think that's an eternal soul. That's an eternal soul. That's not someone who cut me off. That's not someone who shortchanged me at the grocery line. That's not someone who wronged me with backbiting. But that's an eternal soul who if they don't know Christ is destined for hell, all those other things get really small really quick. All those things that I think are so important, those things that used to keep me up at night don't. Paul's biggest concern with his life, not getting beaten with rods, not being stoned with rocks, not being rejected by his countrymen. It was his heart for their souls. It was the heart for his nation. They were lost. And they desperately needed the Jesus that he had and that he was preaching. And they didn't know that what was his biggest concern. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Not about myself, not about my health, not about even the health of those around me, but the spiritual health of my nation. For I wish, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ. That's the next section. That's common. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 through 32, Moses said the same thing to God. I don't want to be saved if they're not going to be saved. That's a paraphrase. I don't want to lose them and just have me. I want them saved. Jesus said the same thing or similar. Galatians 3.13, Jesus had the same heart that he became sin for us, that he was cursed for our sakes. That was his heart. I would rather be separated from my father if many can come to him by it. And that needs to be my heart too, and every Christian's heart. Now, I, I, I'm nowhere near the, any of these giants. I love y'all. I'm obviously here tonight. There's a lot of places any of us could be tonight, and I could be a lot of different places, and I love you to that point. But these guys got some serious heart issues that I admire. I wish I was more like Paul. I don't know that I'd want to... I don't know that I ever want, and of course, no, it's impossible, right? I mean, it, it's, not, it's not like he, it's not a choice. Paul isn't saying that Christ's death on the cross is insufficient. Maybe I should die for the sins of the nation also. He's not saying that. He's just saying that's how much it means to me. I would, I would gladly go to hell if everybody else could get saved from that, knowing that that's not possible. Jesus, on the other hand, it worked. And of course, he was redeemed, of course, by himself, raised himself up from the dead because he was sinless, faultless. 
But Moses had the same concern for the people that he was leading out, the same people that would complain about him, the same people that would whine and wish him dead, that wish they could take over his authority, they wish they could uh, go back to Egypt, they wish they weren't following him at all. He had that same heart. And so I guess that says something about myself and maybe about all of us, that we need to have that heart. That's something that only by the Holy Spirit, only being so in tune with God's heart for the world, could I ever get this. I could never get to Paul, Moses, or Jesus' place unless I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, unless I'm filled with the love of God for those around me. Anyway, back to this. The third thing in this section that I want to get to is this. He says, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. He's saying, look at all the things that they had been given, and yet they still rejected coming to God by faith through Christ. Look at all these things they've given. They've been given all of these things, and Paul names them because they're, they're accountable for that. I'm accountable for that. The world's accountable for that. We're accountable for all the blessings that God's given us, and we've counted them as uh, happenstance or our own doing, not realizing that God is the author of all these things. He's the one that's given us all these things and never giving him credit for it. Paul says you're held accountable for that. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. He's talking about Jesus here. Don't anybody ever tell you that the Bible never claims Jesus is God come in the flesh? Paul just said so right there. You could move the comma and make it change its meaning. But that comma is there on purpose. It's ordained. It's by God's will that it's placed there. Christ came, who, Jesus, is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus is God come in the flesh. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not like it didn't work. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For there is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Paul's taking them through this. Just because you're of the seed of Abraham doesn't mean you're actually saved. It doesn't mean it's automatic. He's trying to break that down for them and explain that to them. Not everybody who is Israel are of Israel. Israel, remember what that word means? When Jacob, tricky, tricky Jake, got his name changed to Israel, which means governed by God. What he's saying there is not everybody who says they're governed by God is governed by God. They're of the nation of Israel, but they're not necessarily governed by God. They're just born into that family. Likewise, with Abraham, there were two sons, but not bo- both of them weren't of the promise. One was of the flesh through Hagar. The other was Isaac through Sarah, the promise. That's where the seed lies. And so just because your father's Abraham, even you guys believe that, he would say to the nation of Israel. Even you guys know that not everybody born of Abraham is of the seed. Likewise, you've got to be born by faith, not just genetics. 
is where he's trying to take them there. He's trying to help them to understand that. Not everybody who says they're Israel is truly governed by God. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is truly governed by God. It's the same idea. You can get baptized, you can get wet, but that doesn't mean you're governed by God. It doesn't mean you're His. That isn't salvation. Salvation is trusting in Him for your salvation, believing on what He did at the the cross. That's salvation. Applying that to your life, saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, and that's me, and I'm applying that to my life. I'm accepting that, and that's what he's getting at here. Christ died for all, but not all activate it, not all implement it, not all accept. And so he's taking them through that. Verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. That's one big parenthetical statement. Let me read it without it. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is before they had done good or evil. This is before they were even born. God had already made his choice, his decision, that Jacob was going to be the one. This is how it's going to go, Abraham. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Then we get to Isaac. It's not going to be Esau. It's going to be Jacob. I've already decided all this. This is, all, this is the way it's going to go. Now, this in no way says that Christ didn't die for Esau. This in no way says that Christ didn't die for Ishmael. It in no way says that they cannot accept Christ and believe on him for salvation or trust in the salvation of God. It just means the line isn't going to follow that. God's chosen a path. It's not, it's not fair. How come Jesus gets to be God? Well, that's, not, that's not what it means. It's a path that God's chosen. So he's explaining to them that God makes choices and decisions as, as purposed for this to happen. I've made decisions here. It's not willy-nilly. I'm not going eeny-meeny. It's by design I'm doing this thing. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. People get hung up on that a lot. Hated? Wow. I mean, that's a bad way to be born. Welcome to the world. Hate you. Not really fair, is it? Well, it's not exactly what it means. I mean, let me take you through some other verses that say hated. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, it says Leah was hated. When, when he had the two, the two wives, was she really hated or loved less? There's a difference. There was a favoritism shown towards one over the other, and so they, they describe it that way. She was loved and Leah was hated, but he didn't hate her. He ends up being buried with her. Remember that? That's how much he loved her. So there's no... Lack there, it's just a decision. Deuteronomy twenty one fifteen says the same thing. It's been loved less. Matthew chapter six verse twenty four. You can't you can't love both. You either hate one or love the other. Between God and Mammon. Well, I don't hate God just because I like money. It's one's more important than the other. One takes precedence. These are things that God has clearly laid out and says hated and loved. Luke twenty or Luke fourteen twenty six. Mom and Dad, you can't if you don't love God and hate your parents. Well, God's never called us to hate our parents. Not the way we're applying it to Esau. What he means is God needs to be preeminent. 
He means to be the most important. And that's all that means between I hated Esau and I love Jacob is Jacob's more important. Jacob's the line. Jacob's where Christ is going to come through. And that's what that means. And then, of course, finally, John 12, 25, you can't love your life. You've got to hate your life. Well, it doesn't mean I want to hate it. We're not supposed to walk around emo wearing black you know, fingernail polish all the time and saying, eh, life's terrible, I hate my life. But I love God. No, no, it just means you live for God. All those verses are important to understand that when he's talking about this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, he's not saying I've cursed, I've sent to hell. It's automatic and predetermined. No, Jesus died for Esau too, as well as dying for Ishmael. In fact, that's what's happening in the Middle East right now, and it's exciting to see what's happening among the nation of Islam. People are coming to Christ without hearing the gospel from missionaries. They're getting visions and having dreams, and they're reading their Bibles, and they're they're getting saved. This is exciting. It just proves the point. Ishmael wasn't hated to the point of, 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 of condemnation, or conviction even, to sentencing's already been established, but that it's a different line. I'm following a different path. Hopefully you understand that. There's a big argument. That's what I'm trying to... If you've never had that argument, praise the Lord. You just ignore this and everything I'm talking about right now, but the argument's out there that some people are just born for hell and some people are just born for heaven, and that's the way it is. Bible doesn't teach that. Bible certainly teaches predestination. It doesn't... It doesn't forgo free will. And so we see both taking place here. Um, anyway, be encouraged by that. God didn't hate Esau like that. In fact, Esau gets totally blessed. If you ever see that, um, he gets totally blessed. He just doesn't get to be the line of the Messiah is all. Um, that's okay. I mean, not everybody can't be the line of Messiah, right? It's got to follow somebody's path. And it was Jacob's that was chosen beforehand. Now, verse 14. What shall we say then? Given all this stuff I've just talked about, Paul says, what shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is he not fair? No, certainly not. This is the same same straw man that Paul puts up beforehand. You know, well, if sin brings God more glory because he can show us more grace, should we sin more? Certainly not. These are dumb questions, he says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. I love that. People come to the conclusion when they read this, though, and this is a very dangerous conclusion, that he's not going to have mercy on some people because he chooses not to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying mercy and compassion are completely mine to give, and I give it. It's to everybody. I give mercy. I love mercy. Now, you may not receive that mercy. You may not receive that compassion. You may choose not to accept it. It's there for everybody, though, and it's mine to give. You don't get to say who I have mercy on and who I don't have mercy on. See, the Jews would argue that point. Well, God loves Israel, but he doesn't love everybody else. They were into that mode. They were the ones, and this would drive them crazy. No, no, no. I can be gracious and compassionate to Gentiles if I want to, and I am, is the idea. You don't get to throw somebody out. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. I don't follow your rules. You follow mine. He goes on. 
So then it is not of him who wills, me, nor of him who runs, me, but of God who shows mercy. I don't get to choose. Here's the thing. It's not that God hated Esau. It's that he loved Jacob. That's the confusing part. Jacob's not any more worthy of God's love at all. It's the fact that he loved them at all should be amazed. That's where we should argue. God, you shouldn't love Jacob. None of us are worthy of love. That's where the argument should lie, not the other way around, not how come he didn't love everybody. How come he doesn't treat everybody equally? How come he doesn't have messiahs coming through all the branches? The argument should be, how could you find love in anybody? Why would you even waste your time? And that's because it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's his choice. And thank goodness, right? Because if the choice was left up to me or you, I could think of some people that I don't think I'd like to have mercy right now. There's some people I'd like to not have grace with. There's some people I'd just rather not forgive. So if it was of me who wills and of me who runs, (laughs) I will be a benevolent dictator. (laughs) But then on the other hand, if you have a perfect God who loves who is love. I mean, that's his description. You won't know love unless you know God. You'll never know love unless you, unless you know God because God is love. He is true love. He is pure love. He is perfect love. We, can, we try to manufacture uh, portions of God's love. We have eros kind of love. You know? and, then we have, and then we have, well, we have all kinds of love. Let's leave it at that. I love my steak. I love my dog. And I love my wife. You know? Not in that order. Don't get me wrong. But God is love, and God is the one who decides who he's going to give mercy to. God is the one who decides he's going to give compassion to. So if he's got that perfect love, thank goodness he's the one in command and control, right? So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You ever read that story of Pharaoh? It's tragic. Later on, and spoiler alert, Paul here in this chapter is going to describe different vessels being made. And some of them are dishonorable and some are honorable. And Paul says, so what if I decide to make dishonorable vessels? Who's that to you? And they get it mixed up in their heads. Because he goes on to describe, what if I decide to suffer long? See, the real question is, if you know ahead of time that there's going to be a vessel made that's not going to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that's going to reject you and be an enemy of yours their whole life and never come to know you, why make them at all? That's the question. God didn't manufacture them so that they could do nothing but be evil. He manufactured them in his image, which is perfect. They're the ones that corrupted themselves. They're the ones that mess it up. And so God, knowing that, why did you make them anyway? Well, what if I wanted to suffer long? Well, if you knew Pharaoh was going to do this to people, why did you even make him? Because that's the kind of God I am. I give everybody free choice. It's not free will. It's not free choice. It's not love if you don't even give them the opportunity to exist. And some would say, I'd rather just not exist than if I'm going to hell. I think that's what he said, isn't it? Remember that when he says that, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would have been better that you not be born. It would have better been, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a millstone hung around your neck and you're going to be thrown into the water. 
That's what happens to those who cause little ones to stumble. It would have been better that you not be born. That's a true statement. If your destination is hell and you're hell bent on it, it would have been better that you not be born. Listen to these, I haven't thought this through, so this is one of those strange moments in the Bible study you can tune out. But I was listening to NPR, I don't know why, I just do. Well, and, and there's this person talking about, you know, we really need to get to the point where we understand what mental illness is and depression and why people want to commit suicide and all these things. We need to figure out how to help them and how the athletic department can do more and how the colleges can do more. And, all, and listening to this, I'm going, if everything you teach is true in college, why is anybody wanting to live? I don't think you're asking the deeper question. You're actually asking the colleges to do better at covering up and getting people's mind off of the true reality of his existence if we are just a large colony of amoeba. I mean, if we really are an infection on top of this earth, which is how you're describing and teaching us that just, you know, things happen. There's mass killings, there's mass shootings, there's things that are happening, there's diseases that take out populations and all that, and that keeps the, that's the earth fighting back. And, and you think there's a way you're going to be able to teach these students after teaching them that, that there's a reason to exist and to live with joy, with happiness, with a purpose? The real question is, how can you teach all that and not expect everybody to jump off a building or put a bullet in their head or do whatever it is that they do to kill themselves? Why exist? Why live? Why wait for the inevitable of darkness forever? You you can't have a joyful existence without God. You can't have a purposeful existence without believing in Jesus. You, You can't. It's impossible. We teach the opposite. I just thought it was ironic that they were trying, they were actually becoming, look at how fake she was on Facebook. Look at how fake this person. She was crying for help, but she didn't know how to do it. See, we've examined her emojis, they said, and we can see that she's using non-human emojis. And they went on and on. And I'm like, so you're accusing her of covering up her true feelings of emptiness and darkness inside And you think the best way to do that is to cover up the end result of her death when she dies naturally. All she did was follow it to its logical conclusion. Why go on another day if the end is the same? Talk about cover-up. Talk about not having reality. Talk about not living with honesty. It was very eye-opening to me. They, they really believe that. There's got to be a better way to cover up the true end. They didn't say that out loud, but that's really what they're saying. Jesus gives us purpose in life, and there's no way to help someone through mental illness. There's no way to help someone through depression without bringing them to Jesus. You're simply giving them a different medication to cover up and to obscure what's right before their eyes. In fact, they may be the most mentally healthy people on the earth. If given everything that's taught them is true, they're probably the most healthy, realizing it is hopeless. Exactly. It is absolutely hopeless without Christ. It is absolutely hopeless without God in your life. It is absolutely hopeless without a way of salvation. It is hopeless. They're right. The ones that haven't gotten there yet, they're the ones that are living a delusional life. 
Teach Christ. Preach Christ. Tell people about Jesus. This world desperately needs it, obviously. You will say to them then, or say to me then, here's your next question, he says. Um, um, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another for dishonor? Every one of us is made from the dust. Every one of us is brought up from the earth. Different ways. Adam and Eve were the originals. They didn't have belly buttons. But the rest of us all come from their genetic code. We're all cousins. Did you know that? We're all cousins. There is no race. It's just one race, the human race. We're all cousins. We all come from the same location. We're all made from that same dust, same lump of clay. And yet some of us pop up and just have nothing to do with God and are, well, we're hell-bent. I'm getting there. I do not want to have anything to do with God. I'm going to hell. If that's where, if that's where he's not, that's where I want to be. Why did you form us? That's not his fault that you chose not to be around him or didn't want him in your life. Or if I don't worship him now, I don't like singing to him now, I don't embrace him now, what makes you think you're going to embrace him later? No, wish granted, just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And finally God said, fine, have it hard. When God doesn't influence, when God doesn't step in, that's the natural progression. That's where you end up, hard-hearted and hell-bent. And so he let Pharaoh have his way, but didn't, it's not like he didn't hear the same words. It's not like he didn't have the same opportunity. He just said, fine, have it your way. Well, then why make us? That's not fair. We'll, we'll, we'll complain about anything. <laughs> why didn't you make me? I did make you. Well, how come you let me go to hell? It's your choice. It's your decision. You decided to do it. Well, then you shouldn't have made me anyway. I'm having this argument with you. How frustrating that might, God must be just looking at, well, he's probably not. He's a lot bigger than I am, but I'm baffled by those arguments. If you knew I was going to hell, it's your fault I'm going. But it's your choice. You decided to go there. You didn't want to have anything to do with me. You didn't love me. You didn't pray. You didn't see me. You didn't accept my son's, I mean, I killed my own son for you and you didn't want him either. Yeah, I know, but that was so narrow. I wanted another way. I wanted another way of escape. Until the point where I didn't want you at all. It's amazing how many atheists are angry with God. Ironic. So why does he still fall, find fault? He says, well, how come, how come you made me if you know I was going to be a vessel of honor and a vessel of, or a vessel of dishonor? Well, would you read, please, and, and preach this to everybody you can, who will listen to you? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 10. Uh, let me read it to you so that they can understand this verse here. I, some people don't think this is the antidote. I do. I think this is Paul writing here saying, you may be a vessel of dishonor, but it's up to you. It says in verse 21, therefore, if anyone... Well, hold on, verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. The cleansing's yours. You can cleanse yourself. Pharaoh could have cleansed himself. 
You know what? A lot of Egyptians did cleanse themselves, and they left with the nation of Israel when they went out of Egypt. They believed him at his word. They applied the lamb's blood to the doorposts of their house, and the angel of death didn't come in, that tenth plague, and they did get saved. A lot of people chose that. They were born in that same house as Pharaoh. They were born in that same nation under that same culture. But they did it. They believed God. This whole thing about free will, predestination, I think Jesus sums up in Matthew chapter 20 when he does the parable of the landowner. Matthew 20, I think, and and not everybody agrees with me on this either, but... I don't know. (laughs) I'm not always right, but I don't know how else you'd describe this. He says it's kind of long, but I think we've got time for it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So Jesus says right off the bat, this is what it means. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. The landowner owns all of it, right? Okay. Who went out early in the morning to hire laborers. For his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing there idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will receive. So when the evening came and the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And then those who, uh, those came who were hired about the 11th hour and they received a denarius and those who came first, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I think that's the key. I'm not doing you any wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give... To this last man, the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's his description. That's his answer for these questions. Look, it's up to me. It's my vineyard. <laughs> I always think it's funny when the when the... When the employees complain, this is just ain't being run right. This business is horrible. We hear that a lot. You know. Oh, CEO of IBM, how much did you make last year? That's ridiculous. You know, they're all fussing about it. Okay, you got a garage like he did when he started. Go for it. Do it better. Do it right. And when you're at the top and you're making your millions or your billions, make sure you don't take any more than 50000 a year and spread it out. Do it right. Do it like they're not doing it. Well, I can't. Why not? He did. So I guess my question is, or I guess my statement is, maybe that's Paul's statement also is, well, then you be God. And you grant salvation to whomever you'll grant it. Well, I can't. Right. You can't. 
And he does. And the grace is for everybody. And the denarius is for everybody. You can't argue against that. Why are you upset that he's being so good to the Gentiles? Because his argument here is for those who thought their salvation should only be theirs and not to everybody else. He says, how come I can't save them? Why can't I be gracious? Why can't I be merciful to them? What's wrong with all that? Anyway, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jew only, but also of the Gentile. That's, that was where I was getting at earlier. He, so he ended up making them, knowing their decision would be firm, knowing that Pharaoh would harden his heart. He says, I'm going to make him anyway. And I'm going to let him make his choices. I'm going to let him harden his heart. I'm going to let him make his decisions. But it's just going to make that day even greater when I do those 10 plague things. You know, I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him. How many great things have come from horrible tragedies in this world? I mean, the biggest one would be the Holocaust. What a horrible thing to take place. God knew it was going to happen, and yet let it. Why? What happened? Because when it suited him, when the time was right, an entire nation was given their land back. It was because of the Holocaust that Israel actually had the United Nations give them their land back, and we see prophecy being fulfilled right now. They're growing it's an amazing thing. A, a nation's never had that happen before where they become not a nation, scattered all over the earth, and then come back to be a nation again. It's never been seen. And God using that and allowing that brought great things from it. Verse 25, he says, Also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. I'm going to do it because I can. I just chose them. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Those are the Gentiles. They weren't his people. They weren't chosen. Israel was chosen. But as he quotes here out of uh, Hosea 1.10, they're going to be, and we are. Isaiah verse 27 also says, Cry out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He knows they're all called. He knows they're all chosen. But they didn't all choose him. You see the picture here, hopefully. He's trying to drive home a point. I chose Israel, but only a remnant saved. Why? Because some thought because they were Israeli, they got saved. And others understood they needed to have the faith of Abraham to be saved. That's how the remnant saved. Some chose, some didn't. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. In other words, he preserved that remnant. He made sure that they were still there so that they could. They didn't seek it by faith. There you go. Verse uh, 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. 
But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not, pertain, or not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it was written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. When the question's asked, how come the Gentiles get saved and the Israelis don't, Paul doesn't write, because it's God's choice. Because he decided for Israel to go to hell, and he decided the Gentiles to be saved. What he brings up is the reason they're going to hell is because they decided not to pursue God by faith. The righteousness doesn't come by faith. They decided to produce righteousness by the law. This is not maybe a big deal for some of you, but for those who struggle with that question, does God just make people for hell? No, he doesn't. They've chosen to pursue righteousness by the law as opposed to pursue righteousness by faith. It's their choice. When asked the question, how come, he says the vessels of wrath basically chose not to follow God's plan by faith. It's laid out for us. That's their choice. They were elected, they were chosen, but some didn't choose him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, and that's our last scripture for the night. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go the wrong way. <laughs> we'll start in verse 22. For Jews request a sign... And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That statement doesn't mean that Christ didn't die for the sins of the world. It just means few choose. Some Jews and some Greeks choose. Some Jews and some Greeks choose not to, but he died for both. It becomes a stumbling block. Christ is a stumbling block for people. The fact that they need to come to God by faith, the, the fact that they have to rely on Christ's work and not their work to go to heaven is a bother to people. Stumbling block isn't a word we use very often. We don't set out stumbling blocks. Maybe you do at home. Maybe your kids have strung a, a string across the doorway to see somebody fall. Maybe they think that's funny. I don't know. That's the idea. Christ is difficult for some people. It's a stumbling block. It's a hardship on them. I wanted to get to heaven on my own. The Jews had always relied on their goodness, on their ability to keep the law pretty well. We do pretty good with it. We do better than everybody else. But when Christ came, that shattered that idea. And it became a stumbling block. To some, like Paul, it was a complete relief. Oh, you're kidding me. Thank you. Because I could not do it. I mean, I tried every single day and I couldn't do it. And to them, it was a relief. Oh, but to others, that's offensive. I was on top. I was ahead. I was the 1% that was actually doing better than everybody else. And now you're saying that everybody can get, get in? That's not fair. And that's a stumbling block because they were resting on their righteousness, on their abilities. And Christ said, no, you've got to come to me by faith. That's why the path's narrow. You know, he says that the road to hell is wide and the path to, to life is narrow. Christ is narrow. It's narrow because it's a bother to people. It's a, it's a stumbling block. It's narrow because it's not traveled on. It's narrow because few choose 
There's just a big wide road to hell because everybody thinks they're going to get there on their own because they've done better than the next guy. Or at least they're not, you know, the worst guy they can think. Well, I ain't no Hitler. So that's the standard. There's one guy in hell, Hitler, and everybody else is better than him. So they're in heaven. No, that road is it's, it's wide open. The, the path to heaven is only a path because it's just not being walked. It's very simple. So that's what we've got to tell people. Look, it's simple and it's easy, but just to so understand what you're up against, that's what you're up against. The same thing Paul was up against. People just want to get to heaven on their own goodness. They don't want Christ. He's a stumbling block. It's difficult for them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul's heart to share this with us. The Jews had a tough time with this. They had a tough time with Gentiles being included and brought into this. It was the Israelites. It was the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel that were supposed to be the saved ones, the chosen ones. And and they thought that meant nobody else could be chosen. They were the exclusive owners of these rights. And they were wrong. It was by faith. Because not all of those who were Israelites were truly governed by God. And you explain that to them. Paul takes the time to do that for us. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you that we're, we're chosen also. And we can choose you. So Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for being that kind of God and for being in charge of grace and mercy. Now, as sons and daughters of yours, God, we pray that you'd help us to be as generous with that grace and mercy as you are, not parsing it out to those worthy or we deem worthy, but Lord, as you saw fit to give out grace and mercy, I pray that we would give out that grace and mercy the same way, God, even to our enemies, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to have that burden like Paul had a burden, like Moses had a burden, like Jesus had a burden for the lost. Help us to have that same burden for our brothers and sisters, or future brothers and sisters, I should say, that don't know you yet. Help us to have that burden for them. Help us to see eternity, and not just the immediate, not just the day. Help us to look past our own small, petty problems or thoughts or worries, God, to the bigger issues, God. Help us to get our minds on the things your mind is on. Eternity, souls of men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.